The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. Why, hello there. Welcome to Deep Tracks in Rock History. That's right. The history of both the rock and the roll. I am your scintillating host, Doug, your brother from another mother, McCullough. And the last episode, we saw a much more confident Elvis. He'd gone from, you know, the the quavering, nervous wreck who'd performed at the outdoor concert at Overton Park and the, you know, the self-doubting side act tagging along with the Midnight Wranglers at the Bonaire Club to the confident opening act overshadowing Hank Snow on his own tour, you know, uh, telling the women of the, the, the teeming sold-out concert in Jacksonville, Florida, girls, I'll see you all backstage. We then saw how the onrush of fans mobbing the backstage area after that, you know, cavalier invitation showed everyone that he was becoming a performer worth noticing, most notably Colonel Tom Parker, who'd been doing only promotional work for Elvis at that point, and who now got, you know, quote, dollar signs in his eyes, according to May Axton. Um, and talent scouts for RCA Victor, who, having heard Elvis's music, now beheld firsthand the energy that this new up-and-comer evoked in his live performances with the almost hypnotic allure he had over his audience. Um, and Elvis would also come to see himself differently. Um this would be noticed by those around him. You might remember uh, we had, you know, I had mentioned Marion Kiesker. Uh, you, you know, she's Sam Phillips's you know, right hand at Sun Records. Um, she she commented that after that tour with Hank Snow, um, Elvis Presley started to give off the vibe that you know maybe Sun Records needed him more than he needed Sun Records. Um, he was also able to purchase his family a nicer home now and buy those Cadillacs for both himself and his parents. You know he was he was a twenty year old kid with money to burn, and things were happening fast. He had just recorded "That's All Right, Mama" in July of 1954 which had been the catalyst for him, Scotty, and Bill to start, you know, achieving local and regional fame, which they did almost overnight. Um, but by May of 1955, so just, just under a year later, they were touring with Hank Snow, who at that time was one of the biggest names in country and Western music. And it was soon after that that Colonel Tom Parker was, you know, wriggling his way into the middle of Elvis's orbit, slowly edging out Bob Neal, of which he made no secret about doing it. Um, for example, during a visit with a publishing company exec in which Parker was asked, you know, what's your interest with Elvis? Uh, Tom Parker replied, Well, this kid is now managed by Bob Neal of Memphis, but I'll have him when Neal's contract finishes in less than a year. And then Peter Goralnik in his book, uh, Last Train to Memphis, points out that by this time, even Bob himself recognized this inevitability and had already begun to cede most of his authority to the colonel while still terming it a partnership deal. Now, at this point, Elvis had become uh, a regular on the Louisiana Hayride. You remember he had he had made one appearance on the Grand Ole Opry. Didn't work out too great, but the Louisiana Hayride had been asking for him to come on, and, and which he had done, and, and then they continued asking him to come on to the point where he was one of their regulars. Although up until now, um, he had been paid the standard $18 union scale that most of the musicians got on the show. But in September of 
five, um, Bob Neal was able to renegotiate that up to $200 per appearance, which is great for Elvis. Um, but some fallout from this deal uh, was that Scotty and Bill were going to be put on a fixed salary. So this, um, if nothing else, made it even more glaringly obvious that Elvis was the star and Scotty and Bill were just the band. And this, this financial wedge that had been placed within their trio was, was blamed by some on the influence of Colonel Parker, even though Bob Neal, as Goralnik put it, was certainly prepared to take the heat. But Bob didn't do that for Parker. He wasn't taking the heat for Parker. Um, really what he was trying to do was he was trying to shield Elvis from any antipathy because Bob knew that the worst thing that could happen would be for Scotty and Bill to blame Elvis for, you know, for what was happening and for resentment to build up. So he basically did everything he could to present Elvis as um, an unwitting pawn in the various machinations of the businessmen. And this was probably not far from the truth. You got to remember, at this time, Elvis was just barely out of high school. You know, he came from a very insulated upbringing and and he was still in many ways a naive kid. That being said, it was also probably not far from the truth that a lot of the drama and turmoil that was now being introduced into the group was in part due to Colonel Parker's meddling. You know, you got to remember this was the Colonel's M.O. He'd done it before with Eddie Arnold and his band. For example, um, the Colonel started bringing up the idea of having Elvis jettison Scotty and Bill completely, as well as their new drummer they just hired, DJ Fontana, and it just simply start touring with Hank Snow's backing band. Um, you know, the, which makes sense in a business, you know, just purely business terms. It's, it's cheaper to have fewer musicians on the, on the, on the bill, you know. Um, but uh, obviously this would not be great for, for Scotty and Bill and, of course, DJ. Um, Scotty and Bill had been there since the beginning. They were part of what had, had kind of brought this success to them in the first place. They were part of the, the process, the ride. So luckily for Scotty Bill and DJ, uh, Bob Neal was able to swat this idea down before it could take hold. But the specter of Parker increasingly isolating his star attraction away from everyone else was now hanging over the group. It was also becoming increasingly easy for Elvis to become further estranged from Sam Phillips. You know, despite having a massive hit maker on his record label, Phillips was facing some struggles with Sun Records that were definitely distracting him from all the stuff happening with Elvis. For one thing, um, Sam Phillips was dealing with a lawsuit with Don Roby at Duke Records. And both that name and that label should sound familiar to you because that was the label that Little Richard had been on before he signed with Peacock Records. You might remember Roby um, was the guy who, during an argument with Richard, knocked him down and, and kicked him so hard in the stomach that Richard needed to have a hernia operation Something else you might remember about Roby was that he was known as the Black Caesar. And this was who Sam Phillips was suing, accusing him of stealing Junior Parker from him. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Junior Parker had been the harmonica player for Howlin' Wolf. So Sam wasn't tangling with someone who was known for wearing kid gloves, but he invested a lot of time and money into both Howlin' Wolf and Junior Parker, you know, who was now himself enjoying a lucrative solo career. Um, Another thing that was demanding a lot of Sam's attention was... Um, He was also launching an all-female radio station at this time called WHER, which had the intention of creating more radio jobs for women, something that, um, considering how much radio was seen as a boys' club, was surprisingly progressive for that era. It gave women a chance to be in radio and have broadcasting careers 
probably women that never would have gotten started. So the, the station was regarded by many to be doomed to failure. Um, like, for example, when construction delays in the studio uh, forced them to move back the station's launch date by a few days, it was covered in the papers as, quote, ladylike tardiness. <laughs> so also on top of all this is the fact that Sam Phillips still had a bevy of other promising artists at Sun Records who also had careers that were beginning to take off and who also needed his time and attention. These were people like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins. And even more on top of the top of all that, Sun Records just couldn't keep up with the demand for Elvis's records. They were a small operation trying to supply a product that was beyond their capacity. You know, it was like a kid's lemonade stand trying to fill all the orders for Minute Maid. So to say Sam had a few other things on his mind besides Elvis would be an understatement. Meanwhile, rock and roll was coalescing into a recognizable independent genre. And it wasn't lost on anybody that Elvis was meshing hillbilly music with rhythm and blues. Something that, of course, the country was seeing more and more of with the rise of rock. I mean, like this, this whole podcast is, has so far been almost completely about that. Just this meshing of hillbilly or country and western with rhythm and blues so discussion of having him do shows with other artists who are doing the same thing was inevitable right thus in october of 1955 the colonel arranged for elvis to perform with the man who had become the biggest name in rock music at that point bill haley three o'clock four o'clock rock five six seven o'clock eight o'clock rock nine ten eleven o'clock twelve o'clock rock we're going to rock around the clock tonight put your bad rags on and we're going to talk more about that encounter with Haley in just a moment. But first, I, I want to point out a few more things. For one, uh, Parker had another goal in mind uh, with this team up with Haley and the Comets, other than combining Elvis with similar artists. Um, he had much bigger aspirations for Elvis than probably even Elvis himself could have concocted. I'm going to draw once more from Goralnik. For the Colonel, the point was something more. RCA was certainly interested but they weren't that interested yet. If they were going to put up the money needed to purchase Presley's contract from Sun Records, they were going to have to believe not just in the artist, but in the movement. This concert with Bill Haley was simply one more way of showing them that there really was something out there, that Presley was not just another hillbilly sensation. In other words, the Colonel wanted to get RCA, a major record label, to purchase Elvis's contract from Sun Records, but he knew two things. One that Sam Phillips would be hard-pressed to sell Elvis's contract unless it was for a ton of money, and B, RCA had to purchase Elvis's contract with the intent to market him on their mainstream pop label and not just shuffle him aside to be marketed towards the country and western charts or you know radio stations where you know he'd likely do well but nevertheless be limited. And this is significant because, as I've said before, even though rock music was blowing up throughout the U.S., it was still not seen as, quote, mainstream by the major record companies. I mean, yes, in 1955, you had crossovers happening more and more, um, like with Pat Boone's cover of Ain't That a Shame, you know, which was charting well, not to mention Haley's uh, Rock Around the Clock. Um, but you would still hear those songs predominantly on, you know, like the, the second tier radio stations, the ones dedicated to rhythm and blues and country and western. Um, y y meanwhile, on the bigger mainstream radio stations, you would more often than not hear songs like Yellow Rose of Texas by Mitch Miller and his orchestra. Or Autumn Leaves by Roger Williams and the Glen Oss Orchestra.
Not to mention the coonskin cap craze creator, The Ballad of Davy Crockett by Bill Hayes with the Archie Blair Orchestra. Mountaintop in Tennessee, the greenest state in the land of the free. Raised in the woods, so they knew every tree, and killed him a bar when he was only three. So basically, orchestras and crooners backed by orchestras, that was the mainstream thing. And these songs like Ain't That a Shame or Rock Around the Clock, they were seen as like novelty acts, you know, something that did well in the lesser charts but were an anomaly when they appeared on the mainstream charts. And of course, artists like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, they were enjoying a great amount of success at this time, like we've discussed in the episodes that we covered them. But again, it was all on the non-mainstream charts, with their music played only on non-mainstream stations, signed only by independent record labels. Not to mention the fact that they were black, which meant they were largely ignored by white America. So the fact that the colonel was aiming for RCA Victor to buy Elvis's contract was unheard of. A major record label purchasing a rock star's contract? That was crazy. Rock and roll was still at the kids' table. There was no way one of the adults would walk over and show any interest in this fledgling music associated with teens and black America and sexual innuendo and whatnot. The load of unsubstantiated poppycock. Anyway... We will now reconnect with Bill Haley. Gronick uh, compared the two artists' styles, Bill Haley and, and Elvis Presley, um, thusly. Haley's music may have lacked the purity and edge that Elvis had achieved in the studio, and certainly his live performances missed out on the smoldering sexuality of Elvis's appearances. But Haley at this point was a star, and Elvis was clearly drawn to that stardom, as if it might just rub off on him. Haley, for his part, was perfectly glad to help a kid who, for all he knew, had never been outside the Memphis city limits before. Then Gronick quotes Bill Haley from an interview that he did with writer Ken Terry. Elvis was a big, tall, young kid. He didn't have too much personality at that time. The first time I remember talking to Elvis was in, I think, Oklahoma City. He was standing backstage and we were getting ready to go on, and he came over and told me he was a fan of mine, and, and we talked. An awful nice kid. He wanted to learn, which was the important thing. I remember one night he went out and did a show and asked me what I thought. I had watched the show and I told him, Elvis, you're leaning too much on ballads and what have you. You've got a natural rhythm feeling, so do your rhythm tunes. And I'll, I'll insert here that when Haley is referencing Elvis's rhythm tunes, he was talking about the tunes from blues, rhythm and blues, gospel, basically the music drawn from black culture. And then Haley goes on in his account about how Elvis didn't do as well at that show as he perhaps thought he would. As Haley put it, he had the attitude, which most young kids do, that he was really going to go out there and stop the show and knock Bill Haley off the stage, which at that time was an impossibility because we were number one. And he went out and he was facing Bill Haley fans. When I came back after doing my show, he was kind of half crying in the dressing room, very downhearted. And I sat down with him and I told him, look, you've got a lot of talent. And I explained to him a lot of things. He and I butted together for about a week and a half after that. So basically, the ease with which Elvis had overshadowed Hank Snow and the more sedate acts that he was used to appearing with was not to be found at the Bill Haley show. Here was an artist who could hold his own with Elvis, I mean, at least for now, and who was already at the top of his game. Nevertheless, Bill Haley helped Elvis's confidence and gave him a pep talk, which you might remember this was referenced in my interview that I did with his son, Bill Haley Jr., last year. And the cool thing in that story that Bill Jr. shared was that years later, after Elvis had eclipsed Bill Haley and, and Haley was seeing his own career begin to, you know, kind of sputter and die, Elvis would seek an opportunity to talk with him and thank him for that pep talk. 
telling him that he owed much of who he was to that brief mentorship he'd received from Haley. And this, in turn, would be a pep talk for Haley, who at the time was struggling with depression and alcoholism, unfortunately. So despite it being a humbling experience, this show with Haley was in the midst of Elvis's broader meteoric rise that was taking him beyond being a regional hit to a national one. He was headlining his own show almost everywhere else that he went, and drawing once more from Guralnik. In West Texas, it was the Elvis Presley Jamboree, with a supporting cast of up to a dozen that now included Johnny Cash and Wanda Jackson. In Lubbock, the young singer Buddy Holly, now actively looking for a recording contract of his own, opened the bill for Elvis and sought his advice. Elvis would say to interviewers during this time that he still couldn't believe it was all happening, that a part of him didn't think it'd keep keep going. The records, the shows, the success, the colonel, the sex. And this is also where he realized that it was all over with Dixie. Um, During his many phone calls home, it was becoming increasingly clear for both of them that their relationship had encountered a crossroad at some point and they'd started going down opposite paths. And borrowing once more from Goralnik, they had talked it over, over and over again. Elvis never really told her that he had been unfaithful, but he knew that she knew and he knew that she forgave him. It wasn't a life for a decent Christian girl. Sometimes when things got quiet or when he was alone for a moment and had time to contemplate, he wasn't so sure it was a life for a decent Christian of any sort. But, he thought, he could handle it. And if he couldn't, if it got too much for him, he could always go back, couldn't he? I will insert here that Dixie had never agreed to do interviews about her time dating Elvis until 1990, and it was Peter Gralnick with whom she'd finally agreed to talk about it. So... That's something else that makes the book Last Train to Memphis somewhat unique is that it contains some of the only primary source material for Dixie Locke. Um, what's kind of interesting is Dixie and Goralnik, um, they met at the same church that she'd attended with Elvis. That's where they, they held the interview and Goralnik recorded the interview, which he said was one of the most emotional interviews he had ever done. Um, so Elvis and Dixie's breakup was rough on Elvis's mom, Gladys, who absolutely adored Dixie, but it also came as no surprise. The, the Presleys, um, whether they wanted to or not, had entered another world. Gladys and Vernon themselves were likewise in a sort of daze with all of this success. You know, they were riding this rocket to the moon with their son and had that similar mixture of pride, elation, worry, disbelief, and hope that their son would you know, somehow both be successful but also never change. Anyway, moving on with our story. In October of 1955, a guy named Arthur Cohen decided to make a film short about radio DJ Bill Randall, who had just been named the nation's top jock by Time magazine. At first, the short was also going to be titled Top Jock, um, but then it was renamed The Pied Piper of Cleveland, A Day in the Life of a Famous Disc Jockey. The 15-minute film was slated to include appearances by the four lads, Bill Haley, Pat Boone, and Elvis Presley. So this would actually be Elvis's first foray into visual media. It would also lead to the first meeting between him and Pat Boone. It was arranged for these artists to do a show in the auditorium of Brooklyn High School in Brooklyn, Ohio, in front of the school's full student body of 3,000 who you might remember was the one making the film, he, he actually wanted to cut Elvis out of the film altogether and only record the other three acts' um, performances. He hadn't really been that impressed with Elvis during the run-throughs the previous day, but the top jock himself, Bill Randall, you know, who this film is about him, um, he, he begged to keep Elvis 
in the movie, and he even agreed to pay out of his own pocket for the cameraman to stick around uh, even longer and also shoot Elvis's performance. So the show continued as scheduled uh, without Elvis realizing that he'd almost been given the night off. But like I said, the show was the first time that Pat Boone and, and Elvis would meet. And because I love Boone's account of their first meeting, I'm going to quote it in full. So after talking about Bill Randall picking him up from the airport, Pat Boone said, On the way into town, Randall told me about a kid on the show who was going to be a big star. I asked him who it was, and he said, Elvis Presley from Memphis, Tennessee. I said, oh yeah? I had lived in Texas, and I had seen his name on some country jukeboxes, and I wondered how in the world a hillbilly could be the next big thing, especially with a name like Elvis Presley. So I was curious, and sure enough, at the high school auditorium where we did this thing, Elvis came backstage, and already he had a little entourage. Entourage! Now, nobody in Cleveland had ever heard of him, so the fact that he had an entourage struck me as funny. I went over, dressed in my button-down collar and thin tie with white buck shoes, and introduced myself. He mumbled something I couldn't understand, leaned back against the wall with his head down, and never looked me in the eye. So I said, boy, Bill Randall thinks you're really going to be big. And he said, hmm, murble, murble, murble. Sort of a country twang mumble. I just couldn't tell what he was saying. He had his shirt collar turned up, and his hair was real greasy. And it was, well, he was always looking down, you know, like he couldn't look up. I thought to myself, what's the matter with this guy? I thought his performance would be a catastrophe, that he'd pass out on stage or something. And then Boone saw Elvis perform, as Boone described it. He looked like he had just gotten off a motorcycle. He had his shirt open, and he looked like he was laughing at something, like he had some private joke, you know? He didn't say anything. He just went into some rockabilly-type song, and the kids loved it. I was really surprised. Then he opened his mouth and said something, and it was so hillbilly that he lost the crowd. Then he sang another song and won them over again. As long as he didn't talk, he was okay. It took me a long time to win that crowd. And I love that. As long as Elvis didn't talk, he was a big hit on stage. His, his hillbilly mannerisms didn't really play up as well in Ohio as they did in the South. And then, of course, as Boone mentioned, once Elvis had gone on, it was, it was a hard act for him to follow. That being said, with their teachers monitoring them, the teens in this crowd were relatively composed, but it was when Boone and Elvis did some other shows together immediately after that, um, in which there were no teachers or stern adult overseers, that Boone really saw the effect that Elvis had on a crowd. And in fact, Boone himself was also mobbed at these shows by teen girls, and both artists found themselves ending their sets with ripped shirts, but always Elvis a little bit more than Boone. Not that it was a competition per se, but... Boone, like so many others, was now convinced of Elvis's rising star. Which brings us back to the Colonel. He started spreading rumors that Elvis's record contract would soon be up for sale, which Sam Phillips was not happy about because it wasn't really true. Sam was not actively looking at selling Elvis's contract, but Colonel Parker knew that Sam was in dire straits financially. And this may have you scratching your head. You might be asking yourself, isn't Sam making a ton of money off the sale of Elvis's records? And the answer is yes. And no, um, you see, record companies at this time had to pay for manufacturing up front, which meant Sun Records had to pay for the creation of records before they saw any money from the sale of the records. And the piddly little mom and pop distributors with which Sam did business couldn't keep up with the demand anyway. So Sam had two choices. He could try to hold on to Elvis's contract, which would demand his sole attention. Or he could sell the contract and use that money to get out of debt and build up his other interests, such as his other artists, you know, like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, as well as his new radio station, WHER. Plus, he could build up Sun Records to the level where if he does have another Elvis, he can actually keep up with the demand for that artist, right? So um, he, he decided to name a dollar amount 
that he was sure RCA would turn down. But, you know, hey, go big or go home, right? So um, Colonel Parker, who was still legally not Elvis's official manager, like they hadn't signed paperwork yet, but he was basically doing the job, he took the amount to RCA Victor. Uh, the amount that Sam asked for was $35,000 for the contract, plus um, he was asking for another $5,000 that he he actually owed Elvis in back royalties. And RCA, uh, as Sam had expected, um, <laughs> they almost laughed at the amount. They said that they would not go over $25,000. I mean, they had just paid... A few years earlier, they had just paid $25,000 for Frankie Lane's contract, and he had been an already established star in mainstream pop. So to pay $15,000 more for a nobody, I mean, an up-and-comer, yes, but basically still a nobody, it was preposterous. But this is where the Colonel's uh, previous groundwork would pay off, focusing in on those RCA reps who'd seen Elvis perform live in person at Jacksonville and other places. He was able to appeal to them, getting them on his side, and then leveraging them for the extra oomph he needed to get all of RCA on board. In the end, the um, the, the colonel uh, agreed to come up with that extra $5,000 in back royalties himself, and then RCA agreed to the $35,000 contract price. It was a shock to everyone, most of all Sam, because it was the most that had ever been paid for any artist up until that point. Thus, in November of 1955, Elvis joined RCA's cadre of artists and became the first rock and roll artist ever to be signed by a major record label. To celebrate the occasion, they did a little picture-taking ceremony after which some of the participants went over to the nearby WHER studio to announce the event and um, do a little interview hosted by Marianne Kiesker herself, who had uh, she had also been one of Sam's point people in creating the radio station. And Marion gives this uh, fantastic account of this interview in which she said that Hank Snow, who had been there at the signing and in the pictures and had joined them for the interview, said, I'm very proud this boy made his first appearance on the national scene on my section of the Grand Ole Opry. Which is true, of course. But Marion, who in her words felt he was being a pompous ass about it, gave this somewhat snarky response. Yes, and I remember you had to ask him what his name was. Afterwards, she would say with some chagrin that it was a rather tactless thing for me to do. But I have to admit, it made me admire her even more. <laughs> Shortly after the RCA signing, Bob Neal bowed out altogether from being Elvis's manager, and Tom Parker, who had already been his manager in, in, on all but paper, um, officially and legally took over. Elvis had reached a milestone and set a new record, but the work had only just begun. Now that RCA had paid all this money for him, he needed to show them that he was worth it. So, uh, in January and February of 1956, he made his first television appearances. For four consecutive weeks, he made weekly appearances on the Dorsey Brothers program uh, stage show. And of course, RCA needed to get an album in stores as fast as possible in order to start you know, collecting some return on investment. Uh, so on January 27th, just one day before his first appearance on the Dorsey Brothers show, Elvis released his first single with RCA, Heartbreak Hotel. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Now, Heartbreak Hotel was actually written by May Axton, who you might remember had handled Elvis's promotional work in Florida during his notorious concert in Jacksonville. You know, she's the one that said the, the colonel got dollar signs in his eyes. You, um, you might also remember her from that story of her and the Carter girls trying to coax Elvis into taking off his shirt while they were at a diner telling him that he should give it to one of them. 
Anyway, according to Graceland.com, she offered Elvis a share of the writer's pub- publishing ownership if the song would be his first new single release for RCA, which of course he did. And the song itself would also show the enlarged budget now behind Elvis and his music. It wasn't just a trio anymore. Performing in the recording are, of course, Elvis, Scotty, and Bill, plus their recently acquired drummer, DJ Fontana. But it also has the Jordan Nair's uh, Floyd Kramer on piano with background vocals provided by other members of the Jordan Nairs. An interesting side note about the song is uh, that it actually has kind of a dark origin story, which is likewise provided on Graceland.com. Uh, according to May Axton and Tommy Durden, who co-wrote the song with her, the inspiration came from an article in the Miami Herald in which it told the story of a man who had completed suicide and left no identification or any other information aside from a note that read, I walk a lonely street. Anyway, RCA had also purchased Elvis's Sun Records tapes when they bought his contract. So in addition to the new material that they were recording with him, they were also able to put out some of the previously unreleased tracks from Sun Records, which were added to his stuff that he was recording with RCA. And this gave them an album's worth of material right away. Um, his first album with RCA was just simply titled Elvis Presley, and among the tracks on the A side were Blue Suede Shoes by Carl Perkins and a Ray Charles song entitled I Got a Woman, and uh, among the tracks on the B side was Little Richard's Tutti Frutti. So um, you, you also might remember I had mentioned in passing a few episodes back that Carl Perkins became the first artist ever to have a hit song on all three charts with his you know record his release of blue suede shoes however you might also remember that this moment in the sun was short-lived before elvis also topped all three charts with heartbreak hotel um we'll actually be revisiting carl perkins next episode so for now that's all i'm going to say about him and blue suede shoes but this is where i will point out something that many of you may have noticed and that is elvis hasn't written a single one of the songs that he's performed and spoiler alert elvis didn't write any of his songs he wasn't a songwriter However, as John Kovash points out in What's That Sound, Elvis was a great song stylist. He may not have been able to write original material, but Elvis had a gift for taking what someone else has started and turning it into something special. He also had a good ear for which songs he should style. It's a well-known fact that Elvis carefully guarded his control over which songs he would do, and as we saw in the excerpt that I quoted from Priscilla Presley's interview a few episodes back, that was the only thing, according to her, that Elvis ever really fought with the colonel over was, you know, whenever the colonel tried to exercise any control in what material Elvis should perform. That being said, I want to shift the focus of our narrative of Elvis's life to the broader cultural impact that he was having. Because there was no way around it. Elvis had left the realm of yet another rock artist and had become a thing that a phrase like broader cultural impact could even be ascribed to. So rock music um, was already associated, consciously and or unconsciously, with sexuality, sensuality, and teenage hormones, like we've discussed numerous times before in this podcast. Um, It was likewise strongly associated with rebellion and wild behavior. Uh, Additionally, its wildfire-like spread amongst the youth of America was seen as a threat by those who couldn't understand its appeal. Uh, In fact, one newspaper headline from 1956 read, Rock and roll called communicable disease. And yeah, I can see how people could view it that way. In a societal pressure cooker that promoted conformity and conservative social norms, the freedom that rock music seemed to engender certainly spread at an alarming rate. It's like in the Barbie movie when they used the lack of resistance to European diseases by native peoples as a metaphor to describe the crazy fast takeover of Barbie land by patriarchy. (laughs) 
Like this is kind of a similar thing. The youth of America hadn't been exposed to this thing, you know, this this sort of thing before, and it was spreading among them like, you know, well, like patriarchy through Barbie land. Um, but there's more to it than that, however. Uh, to illustrate this, I'm going to read the opening paragraphs to the article with that communicable disease headline that I just mentioned a moment ago. Hartford, Connecticut, March 27th. A noted psychiatrist described rock and roll music today as a communicable disease and another sign of adolescent rebellion. Dr. Francis J. Braceland, psychiatrist-in-chief of the Institute of Living, called rock and roll a cannibalistic and tribalistic form of music. Yes, you heard that right. He was calling it cannibalistic and tribalistic, both of them being indirect yet uber-racist ways of referring to black culture. It wasn't enough to fear the sexuality and rebellion associated with the music, but racist undertones likewise pervaded almost every negative criticism of the music. However, for many people in white America of that time, these things were not separate. Uh, the writer Brian Ward um, argued that whites had long reified black culture as the perpetually fascinating but feral, alluring but alarming, sensual but sordid antithesis to the dominant white one. Which helps explain Jack Kerouac's own musings in his famous work, On the Road, in which he said, At lilac evening I walked with every muscle aching among the lights of 27th and Welton in the Denver-colored section, wishing I were Negro, feeling that the best the white world had offered was not enough ecstasy for me, not enough life, joy, kicks, darkness, music, not enough night. I'm bringing up all of this because when Elvis would himself become the avatar for all these scandalous things associated with rock music, he would also become the target for every one of the types of attacks leveled at them, i.e. the attacks triggered by the alleged promotion of sexual promiscuity, teenage rebellion, and, you know, replacement theory level psychoparanoia like the uncivilized influence of black America on white America. I will illustrate this through a very famous example. On June 5th, 1956, Elvis was invited to perform on the Milton Berle show. And right away, some of you listening to this um, might know exactly where I'm about to go next in the narrative. This event that I'm about to talk about remains to this day one of the most infamous tidbits of both Elvis's story and the story of rock itself. But let me lay some groundwork real quick first. Milton Berle was a comedian who in the 1940s became the first television uh, superstar. In fact, one of the nicknames by which he was known was Mr. Television. Basically, before Johnny Carson and even before Ed Sullivan, there had been Milton Berle. So to be invited to perform on his show was a big deal. You know, signing with RCA had meant Elvis was the biggest thing in the music industry, but performing on Milton Berle meant that Elvis was becoming the biggest thing in showbiz, period. And the song that Elvis and his band had decided to do was, you guessed it, Hound Dog. Elvis, sing your hit song. Now, the song Hound Dog itself is actually a 12-bar blues song, and it was written by a songwriting duo that we'll be discussing in more depth in later episodes, uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Um, they'd originally written it for Big Mama Thornton, who'd released it through Peacock Records in 1953. And me mentioning Peacock Records in conjunction with Big Mama Thornton might remind you all of when we discussed Little Richard and the juicy morsel that he dropped in his account of Don Roby's abusiveness, that Roby would beat uh, almost all of his performers that he managed, except for Big Mama Thornton, because... She was the only person that he was scared of. Anyway, like I said, we're going to talk more about Lieber and Stoller in a future episode, which will also give us more opportunity to discuss Big Mama and Hound Dog. So for now, we'll just stick with Elvis's performance of it. 
Um, Hound Dog was slated to be Elvis's next big release from RCA in July of 1956, which was the reason they were performing it on the Milton Berle show. This was supposed to be something of a, a promo for the upcoming release of Elvis's new single. However, while performing the song on the show, which was live television, Elvis began doing a very risque sort of dance, moving his hips around and back and forth, which to modern viewers honestly wouldn't raise any alarms, but at the time it was the most scandalous thing ever seen on television. And in order to give you an idea of the backlash received, I'm going to play a clip of three people's reactions that are included in the 1981 documentary, This is Elvis. I need to preface the clip with a couple of things, though. Um, one of them is because the first two reactions have been lampooned so much in later media, it may sound to modern ears like these people are joking or like it's some kind of pastiche. But I assure you that these are real reactions that people had had to Elvis's performance at that time. Also, the third and final person that you'll hear speaking in this clip is standing next to a sign that says, we serve white customers only. And the word white is emphasized in larger font. And um, you, the word that you'll hear me bleep in his reaction is the N-word. So, all right, here we go. Here's the, the three reactions. There is no room in this city for the vulgar performances of Elvis Presley. It's shocking. I watched him gyrate his legs and swivel his hips. And our parent-teachers group feels he should not be on television. We've uh, set up a 20-man committee to do away with the, this vulgar, animalistic <laughs> rock and roll bob. Our committee will check with the restaurant owners and the cafes to see what uh, Presley Records is on their machines and then ask them to do away with them. So in that clip, you heard Elvis's performance described as vulgar, shocking, and animalistic. Right there, you have the unspoken references to his association with sex and black culture. And you also heard the mention action being taken by city officials and parent-teacher organizations. That's your teen rebellion reaction right there. And the language used by these three people was by no means original to them. Rather, they were parroting what was already being said in the larger cultural space. For example, Ben Gross of the New York Daily Times wrote that Elvis's grunt and groin antics were suggestive and vulgar, tinged with the kind of animalism that should be confined to dives and bordellos. So there you have it. But it's easy to paint these people in a two-dimensional light. It's, it's easy to forget that everyone's philosophies and paradigms are affected by cultural poles and pressures. Thus, to be somewhat fair to these people and maybe more so than some of them deserve. I want to give a little context for them and their perspective that I think is stated well in Glenn C. Altshuler's book, All Shook Up. He said, The rise of rock and roll and the reception of it, in fact, can tell us a lot about the culture and values of the United States in the 1950s. According to historian James Gilbert, there was a struggle throughout the decade over the uses of popular culture to determine who would speak to what audience and for what purpose. At the center of that struggle, rock and roll unsettled a nation that had been living in an age of anxiety since 1945. The Cold War produced numerous foreign crises, the Berlin Airlift and the Korean War among them. A fear of internal subversion by communists stoked by the often irresponsible charges of Senator Joseph McCarthy resulted in loyalty oaths, blacklists, and a more general suppression of dissent. And then Altshuler goes on to cite a poll from the time that has some rather disturbing results. In a national poll conducted in 1954, more than 50% of Americans agreed that all known communists should be jailed. 58% favored finding and punishing all communists, even if some innocent people should be hurt. 
and a whopping 78% thought reporting to the FBI neighbors or acquaintances they suspected of being communists a good idea. Now, you might be wondering what communists have to do with rock music. Well, aside from the fact that many Americans associated the Communist Party movement uh, with artists and entertainment, this poll demonstrates a larger paranoia that was felt throughout the country for which rock music was, be, you know, had become really like a really big damn it doll for all of their all of their anxiety and, and frustration. Um, Altshuler echoes this broader paranoia in this next quote that I want to share. Coinciding with the Cold War, of course, was the nuclear age and the possibility of a war that would obliterate the human race. The construction of fallout shelters and instructions to school children about how to survive an atomic attack probably alarmed as much as they reassured. And cover. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Paul and Patty know this. No matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb, duck and cover. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. First, you duck. And then, you cover. You duck and cover tight. Duck and cover under the table. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You. And you. And you. And you. Duck and cover. Don't tell me that jingle isn't going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Anyway, as we've seen in previous episodes of this podcast, this paranoia was often channeled into the culture war surrounding the American family. So, once again, quoting Altshuler, The family seemed as vulnerable as the nation to internal subversion in the 1950s. Not even the communist conspiracy, U.S. Senator Robert Hendrickson asserted, could devise a more effective way to demoralize, confuse, and destroy the United States than the behavior of apathetic, absent, or permissive parents. Americans worried about working moms, emasculated dads, and especially about a growing army of teenage terrors poised to seize control of the house, lock, stock, and living room. These fears, crystallized in a decade-long crusade against juvenile delinquency, replete with dozens of congressional hearings and hundreds of pieces of legislation to regulate youth culture. So, people were scared. And I know this is all territory that we've covered before. But it bears reminding because um, this helps explain the veritable shark tank into which Elvis had unwittingly cannonballed. Thanks in no small part to tensions linked to the Cold War, the nation had worked itself up into a panic that had spread into everything. And Elvis hadn't been seeking this sort of spotlight. He was perhaps more perplexed than anyone by the reaction to his Milton Berle appearance. I had no idea this performance of Hound Dog was going to cause such a row. The critics jumped all over me for it. I still can't figure out what got him so riled. However, he was already scheduled to appear just a few weeks later on Steve Allen's new Sunday night variety program. And as Altshuler put it, NBC took note of the criticism, but the network did not cancel the Allen show appearance. In fact, they did something else instead. Um, Steve Allen assured viewers on his show that he would not allow Presley to, quote, do anything that will offend anyone. And uh, framing the appearance as something of a reinvention, he introduced the singer as the new Elvis, after which Elvis walked out on stage wearing a tuxedo. And then, when it came time for Elvis to perform Hound Dog, Steve Allen rolled out a basset hound on a pedestal, the, quote, ostensible object of affection, as Altshuler put it, and Elvis played the whole thing up, taking the dog in his arms, uh, cupping her face as he sang to her, even giving her kisses. 
Meanwhile, the Hokum Blues roots in the song were completely overlooked. And yes, I said Hokum Blues because, of course, the song Hound Dog is essentially about sex. For example, the lyrics, you can wag your tail, but I ain't going to feed you no more, are very clearly singing about unrequited seduction. Nevertheless, despite all the backlash and uproar in reaction to his Milton Berle performance, Elvis's fans stood by him and supported his scandalous performance style. Uh, in fact, when he entered RCA Studios for a recording session the day after his Steve Allen appearance, he was greeted by fans holding signs that said, We want the real Elvis, and we want the gyrating Elvis. And in language even louder than fans holding signs, Elvis's recording of Hound Dog overtook both Tennessee Waltz and Rock Around the Clock as the best-selling record of the 1950s, with a sale of over 7 million copies. That was language that no one could ignore, including Ed Sullivan himself. So, <clears throat> previous to this, Sullivan had vowed he would never book an appearance by Elvis on his show, saying that Elvis was not his cup of tea. Though, in private conversation, I'm sure Sullivan, uh, you know, put it much more crassly than that. Ed Sullivan, you know, despite being the self-proclaimed arbiter of taste and providing the platform from which new trends and popular culture would spring, he was himself in many ways a stodgy traditionalist. Uh, like, for example, in Bill Haley Jr.'s book about his dad, um, you know, Crazy Man Crazy, uh, Bill Jr. pointed out that when his father and his band, The Comets, had appeared on Ed Sullivan's show, they, quote, were the first rock and roll act that ever appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, and Sullivan let them know he wasn't impressed. He made no attempt to disguise his disdain for The Comets' sound and teased Bill about his trademark kiss curl tugging at it off camera. Is that thing real? He asked Bill out of earshot of the audience. What are you, a fag or something? So like many of the old guard on television, uh, Sullivan pined for the halcyon days of hosting crooners. But the country was in a bold new world. And if these TV hosts wanted to stay relevant, then rock artists were the ones that they needed to have on their shows. So while metaphorically holding his nose, uh, Sullivan finally agreed to have Elvis on once he'd seen how much appearances by Elvis had helped both Burl's and Allen's ratings. Not only that, but he agreed to pay Elvis an unprecedented $50,000 to do so. And that was the whirlwind in which Elvis found himself. On the one hand, the entertainment industry establishment was still reluctant to accept rock music as legitimate, and the moral establishment decried rock music as evil. But on the other hand, rock music brought in so much money and generated so much attention that it was impossible to ignore or contain. This was why you had people investing in the so-called clean-cut figures in rock and roll like Pat Boone and Dick Clark. For those people who recognized that rock was here to stay and there was no use fighting it, they sought instead to channel its energy into what they saw as a more acceptable idols in the genre. But despite all the popularity that Pat Boone enjoyed, he was no Elvis Presley. It wasn't even a competition. The efforts at portraying them as two opposing yet equally matched icons of a contrived duality in rock music was less so a clash of the titans and more like the dream team in the 1992 Olympics versus every other country's basketball team. And like I mentioned last episode, Elvis's meteoric rise would create a new center of gravity in the music industry. It very quickly went from major record labels actively ignoring rock artists to not only obsessively scouting rock artists, but more than that, obsessively scouting their own Elvises. You see, the major record labels still didn't see rock music as a movement. They were still only looking at the icon at the forefront, thinking that it all had to do with him. Thus, what you saw in the late 50s wasn't so much the rise of rock music in general, 
but rockabilly in particular, because that was the brand of rock that Elvis had brought to the table. And so it would be similar rockabilly style artists that would enjoy the increased attention. And that's what we will discuss next episode. Who will be these other Elvises? And what will this mean for rock music in general? And we will begin this discussion by picking up where we left off with Sam Phillips, because like I mentioned before, one of the reasons he felt comfortable in selling Elvis's contract was because he had other pies baking in the oven, or he had other fries in his Happy Meal. He had other cars on his lot. Whatever, you get my point. The We are going to go back to Sun Records and look at the next wave of rock artists. So don't miss it. It's gonna be epic. And you know what to do, my friends. Until next time, keep it deep. I want to tell you that beat with your foot is absolutely sensational. I want to have to get something there. Elvis, if I did that thing the same way you did it, do you think I could get all the girls the way you did it? Well, uh, I might not have to get girls, but at your age, you keep your blood circulating. At my age, I'm making it feel like a used car. I want to tell you, how can I get these girls to scream over me this way? I really mean that. How can I do that? Uh, Mr. Bro, I, I don't think you'd like it. I wouldn't like one? What do you mean? No, I mean, I don't like it, all these girls. Screaming, always changing clothes, always, always, always trying to rip your part, always trying to kiss you, and I don't like it. You don't. Somebody wants to stomp on his head with those blue suede shoes. 